Last week, we uh, entered into a discussion of this passage that we find in John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 2. That'll be our scripture, main scripture text. We really ended in the, in the middle of the exchange between Jesus and the people at the temple in the day of the Passover. One thing that we said last week was this was a great festival, the greatest of the Jewish calendar. It, it, accounted, it recounted for them the exodus of the people of God from Egypt, from slavery to freedom, and how God had done that at a great cost. Remember the cost was not only the first nine plagues which plagued everything from their commerce to their drinking water to their health to their livestock and their way of making living. God had plagued all of these things. He then in the tenth and most terrible plague turned to the firstborn of every household which was not under the blood of a lamb offered in their place. Remember God said on the same day you shall kill the lamb place its blood on the fence post or the gateway and the doorpost, and then you shall cook and eat the lamb. All of the lamb shall be consumed on that night in the home. And those who are in the home, the death angel shall pass over them, seeing what? The lamb's blood. And we said that this was a direct connection between sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, of the Old and the New Testament. God begins in the very beginning as He delivers people. We said from Adam forward that He has always required a sacrifice. And it has been for those who are believe and trust in Him and His Word, it has always been a substitutionary sacrifice. Right? So Jesus is going to Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate a feast that is about His sacrifice that is to come. So He arrives to find what? He arrives to find people making money and profit off of people who have come to worship Him. That's what He finds. We did not condemn the practice of selling things outright. Jesus didn't either. It was necessary that the people buy their sacrifice in Jerusalem because they had traveled for some, for some great distance, many of them. So they came to Jerusalem and they were able to buy and purchase their sacrifice. It was the fact that they had turned it into nothing more than a money-making opportunity for the merchants and convenience for the people. They could have had the market outside the temple wall, on the street corner, right? Why in the church? Why in the temple did they bring these things? And so, Jesus uh, has righteous anger, we said. He braids for himself a cord and he drives out everyone. And his statement is, zeal for your house has consumed. And the disciples immediately are caught off guard by this and later remember Psalm 69.9, which Jesus is fulfilling in their very presence. He does it here and then he does cleanse the temple one other time at the end of his ministry. We're in the middle of the account and we find as Barry read that Jesus is asked a question by the Jews, Jewish leaders. There are three things I'm going to uh, try to point out to you today from this paragraph. The first is spiritual truth 
cannot be discerned by natural means. Spiritual truth cannot be discerned by natural means. The second is spiritual truth is often not heard because we do not want to hear the truth. And finally, spiritual truth can be understood by even the most uneducated. So let's get started. Spiritual truth cannot be discerned by natural means. The leaders in the temple have come to Jesus and he says, what, they say, what sign will you give us as to doing these things? What gives you the authority is their question. Now, why are they asking for a sign? Jesus has already performed the miracle at Cana, which probably preceded him. I mean, if somebody turns normal, ordinary water into wine, that gets out around town. Remember, Capernaum, where he performed the miracle, is not far from Jerusalem. And the time frame between that miracle and him coming to the temple to celebrate Passover is very short in nature. They haven't forgotten, in other words. This just occurred. So there was probably already some talk about Jesus there in Jerusalem, even as he entered. Now, if that's not enough of a witness, the man shows up and begins to drive people out of the temple, overturning uh, money changers' tables, setting pigeons loose, driving animals out into the street along with their humans that were caring for them. No quite small stir among the people, wouldn't you say? And he does all of this by himself. The scripture doesn't say any disciple jumped in and was his bodyguard. Nobody resisted him. I mean, let's just think about it. Grown men were gaining profit. If you want to mess with somebody, mess with their pocketbook and see if they don't get angry. I mean, this man is destroying business as they knew it, that they had probably carried on for years and even decades before. Their fathers might have passed these businesses down to them. What gives this Nazarene the right to come in here and overturn our businesses? There weren't just a few. They filled the temple court. Remember, millions came and joined for these sacrifices. These aren't just a few little sheep over in a corner somewhere. There's thousands of sheep. There's thousands of pigeons. There's thousands of coins. And Jesus is just flinging them everywhere and nobody stops him. Nobody seizes him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, had a sign. They had two signs. And if that's not enough, look with me at John 2.23 at the end of the account and see what is said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. He entered the Passover feast doing signs. Now, we're not given the specifics, but we see other specifics at other cases. Things like healing blind people, making lame men walk, healing leprosy, speaking to uh, people who had infertile wounds and people uh, issues of blood, and all these things cleared by the spoken word or by the touch of His hand or by the grabbing of the hem of His garment. And they're asking for a sign. No, no waiting rooms, no HMOs or PPOs or any other abbreviated insurance needs, no money is taken for these services Jesus just performs these things at His own will. And yet, here come these Pharisees saying, now we need signs if you're going to start doing these kinds of things, Jesus. I don't think they actually have a genuine concern for a sign. If they needed a sign, they had many signs. That's not their problem. What is the problem? Well, I would like to say the Bible 
is necessary for a person to understand spiritual truth. The Bible is necessary. Now, you say, well, the Pharisees had the Bible of their day, but they didn't know it. Jesus constantly says, have you not read? Do you not know? Have you not understood? Are you a teacher of your people and yet you don't understand these simple things of the Scripture? And who is it that recognizes that he's fulfilling a prophecy of the Old Testament? Not the religious leaders who should have been keen to their, this cleansing of the temple as zeal for your house is consuming. And they should have said automatically, this is being done in our very presence. This guy's not a normal guy off of the street. Do they recognize it? No. Who recognizes it? The disciples recognize it. They've rejected the Word of God in some way, and we can see a hint of that in this passage. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now, in our day, that's not very popular. If you go to the latest conference on evangelism, you're going to learn a lot of sales techniques, bait-and-switch tactics, uh, you're going to hear about how you can uh, strong-arm somebody into a decision, how you can give them a logical option in which to choose, right or wrong, where the most uh, risk is in the equation. You've heard that, I'm sure. You know, if I'm right and you're wrong, you have everything to lose. If you're right and I'm wrong and you're an atheist and you're right and I'm wrong, then we're all just going to go to dust. So which one would you rather be in? Well, don't you want the insurance policy? And the insurance policy is Jesus Christ. We hear all this about evangelism. Can I tell you what evangelism is? Clear, plain, and simple from the Scripture. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. You can strong arm them, sell them, and teach them all the little one, two, three steps you want. If the Word of God is not central and foremost in your presentation of the Gospel, they will not believe. They can't have faith without the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no inner witness. Don't fall to that trap. We have many, many denominations now, even of Christian, so-called Christians, who would preach this inner witness, the warm feeling. Don't you think this is the most important thing you've ever heard? And wouldn't you like to be right about this most important thing? And don't you feel a tug at your heart? None of that's ever talked about in Scripture. Jesus is devoid of emotion when He talks about this uh, instance of being saved. When he speaks of salvation, he speaks clearly from Scripture and then commands repent and believe. He, he never begs strong arms or sells anything. He simply presents the truth and says, Now believe it, and you will be saved. And that's what Romans 10 says. 10, uh, chapter 10 is misused and abused every day in our common quoting of it and use of it. But we need to go on down through the passage and see that faith comes from the Word of God. And what is it about the Word of God that is so powerful? What is it about the Word of God that's so powerful? Jesus says in John 13, later in our discussion of John, we'll get there, Lord willing, and He tarries long enough. We'll get to John 13. And He says the, the Helper is coming. And when He comes, what will He do? Not give you a warm fuzzy. He won't do that. He'll come to remind you of all things I've taught you. And where are Jesus' teachings contained for us? In the Word of God. It's that simple. The Holy Spirit needs, wants, and desires something to work with. And what He works with is not our emotion or our intellect. What He works with is the Word of God. 
Therefore, there's no boasting. It's not about you being smart. It's not about you being emotional sap. It's about the fact that the Word of God has been spoken to you, that's taken root in your heart, in your mind, and now the Holy Spirit uses that as the channel of faith that He gives you. So the first thing we see from these religious leaders is they don't accept the Bible. They haven't accepted God's Word. And if you're going to be saved, if you are saved, it is by the Holy Spirit working through the Bible. The Word of God is superior to signs and wonders. Luke 16, 31, Jesus is telling a story. And I remind you, this is not a parable. When Jesus speaks in parable, He says clearly, I'm speaking in a parable. At the beginning of this story of Lazarus and the poor man, the beggar, He doesn't say anything about a parable. He says there was a rich man named Lazarus and there was a beggar at his table. And he launches into this discussion about the beggar who begged for crumbs all of his life at Lazarus' table and they both die on the same day. One goes to the bosom of Abraham, the other goes down into uh, the holding of hell, the, the deep place of hell. And looking up at Abraham and Lazarus, in Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, they're in paradise. The rich man cries out, let me or someone go back from the dead and tell my brothers that lest they come to this place. Jesus is very clear. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 16, verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Moses and the prophets was a clear way of referring to the Word of God in their day. That was the Word of God. It encapsulated the whole Old Testament, even the Psalms and the poetry. It's the way the Hebrews refer to their Bible, their Scripture. So Jesus is saying they have the Scripture. And if they won't hear it, they won't see a sign. They won't even see or believe the greatest sign. What greater sign could you think of than to raise someone from the dead? Of a power and authority. I can't think of any. Matter of fact, that is the one sign Jesus gives them in this passage. You look for this sign. You tear this temple down and in three days it will be raised again. So it is the greatest of all signs. And yet Jesus says, if they won't believe the Bible, they won't even believe this greatest sign. So if I do all the miracles I want to do in your presence, you're not going to believe. No one was ever saved simply by seeing a miracle. People were saved because they heard the Word of God and had faith through the Holy Spirit and believed in Jesus Christ. No one was ever saved by a miracle. That's why when the false prophets in our day stand and, and offer miracles as proof of their power from the Holy Spirit, we need to be very careful. When they draw crowds by selling tickets to have a dog and pony show and to make a mockery of Jesus Christ and His power, we need to be very careful. Jesus draw, draws people to Himself through His Word. He did it in His own ministry. You would say, well, He did miracles. Yes, He did. But they were the sideline. They were not the main show. The main show was a simple man who stood before them and, or sat before them and proclaimed the truth. So we have this, that the first of all, that the Bible is necessary. Second of all, that it's superior to all signs. And third, I want to give you some examples of the inability of people to understand spiritual truth by natural means. Flip just over to John 3, 3 through 4, or it's on the screen for you. This is the story of Nicodemus. When he came to Jesus 
uh, desiring to know how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the exchange? Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He's trying to understand spiritual truth by natural means. Makes no sense to him. It sounds like a, some type of riddle, some type of hidden message. Because he's filtering it through his natural eyes. The only birth he knows about is the birth through the womb of a woman into physical life. Jesus is not talking about that birth. Jesus is talking about spiritual birth. He's talking about regeneration, birth through the Holy Spirit. And so this natural man trying to perceive things through his natural grid can't understand the truth. John 4, verses 13 through 15. Jesus said to the woman at the well, remember that he comes to this woman, comes to the well, this woman is there, and he says, give me a drink. And she says, you speak to me, you a Jewish man, me a Samaritan woman, you would speak to me. He says, woman, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask him for water. And he would give you water that would what? Spring up unto eternal life. A spring of water that would never run dry. And you would never need to thirst or never thirst or never need to draw water again. Right? That's what we see in our passage. Look, read with me. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Talking about the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Total misunderstanding of a spiritual truth, right? She thought it was physical water. He was talking about spiritual water. He is the water of life, the spring of life. He says that. Now, I I want to say we misuse the scripture also and, and misinterpret it this way. How many of you have ever or possibly heard someone and thought, that's right, use Isaiah 53 where it says, by his stripes you are healed to tell you or someone else if you would believe in the power of Jesus, you would be healed because he's paid the price for you. By his stripes you are healed. I've heard that. On many occasions. That is understanding by natural means a spiritual truth. You can't claim that. The truth is that you are healed by His stripes. How? Spiritually. Eternal life. There's no promise for health and wealth and prosperity in that truth. We must be careful when we come to the Scripture to understand appropriate. Appropriate the Scripture into either spiritual or physical. And stay in those terms. Never cross the line that Jesus doesn't cross or the Scripture doesn't cross. And that's the failure of the Pharisees. They're looking through purely purely physical eyes so they can't understand the signs. Summarizing this point, I want to say spiritual things are discerned spiritually. Clearly. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 That's why when you take the scripture to your lost friend 
and they get more tangled and more confused. The answer is not to resort to logic or human reason. Keep handing them the Scripture and praying that the Holy Spirit will enlighten them and illumine them to the truth. That's the only solution. Not to run from the Scripture, to stay in the Scripture. Spiritual truth, secondly, second truth I want to talk about. Spiritual truth is often heard, not heard, because we don't want to hear the truth. I don't even remember what, it may not be a movie you need to watch, but uh, I don't remember where it is, but I remember the line, you can't handle the truth. And that's what these men were struggling from. They couldn't handle the truth. See, I believe naturally they understood. Naturally, when they heard Jesus talk about tearing down the temple and they had seen Him purge the, physically and naturally, they had read Scripture. They knew in their natural minds what it was happening in this occasion. They couldn't handle what was happening. They couldn't handle it. And people you deal with can't handle the truth often. You have to be patient and kind with them. The Jews did not really want a sign. They actually were challenging Jesus' authority. Jesus was doing signs all around the Jewish leadership. I already gave you uh, that reference and read that for you. The question for us is not, is there a sign and is there truth? The question is, are we willing to conform to the plan of God? That's the question for me as I look at this text. That's the question for you as you look at your life. Not is there truth and not is there a sign. There's plenty of that. The question is, are you willing to make and submit yourself to Him and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He might conform you to His plan? See, we're so busy. I find myself so busy trying to conform God to my plan. Make Him do what I want Him to do. That's not what we're called to do in Scripture. What we're called to do in Scripture is to humble ourselves under God that He might conform us, transform us. And so, that's the question I'm asking on this point. Are you willing to submit to the plan of God or not? The Jews did not want to hear what Jesus was saying because it attacked their religious system. 19 through 21 is very clear. They felt threatened by Him. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it was taking us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? It had taken them 46 years. Um, they began to work on this particular uh, renovation of the temple in 20 B.C. under Herod. It's now 26 A.D., right around that time. They've been at it 46 years now. 46 years. They won't finish the project until A.D. 63. Okay? They're going to continue on for years to come building this renovation to the temple. And seven years later, the Romans are going to come in and sack Jerusalem and destroy their temple. Jesus predicts that also. He says, you take these, not one stone will be left on top of the other. And if you've ever seen Jerusalem, you understand the temple proper is gone. It's gone. There's not one stone on top of the other. There's a gold dome on top of it now. A whole other religion has their temple mount. It's been hijacked for a false religion in the Muslim faith. They've lost it all. And Jesus is telling them, not that, but He's using their temple, their magnificent building, which, by the way, God didn't ask for, but they asked to build it for Him. 
so that they could look good to all the neighboring nations. Oh, that our mighty God doesn't have a house and Dagon has one and all these others have one. Baal has one. We don't have a house. Our God needs a house. God said, I've been content to dwell in a tent with my people from the very beginning. And Hebrews tells us what? The temple God dwells in is not made by hands or plans of man, but by a holy plan and by God himself. And it is in heaven. It's not here. So they had, they had hijacked the plan in a sense, making this temple for God. And they're working, working, working on this temple. And it's the source of their religious pride. All that they know in their religious nature and in their religious being centers around Jerusalem. It's the point of contention. It's the point of pride that they hold up. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to tear down the temple and in three days raise it up. And they're still looking to their natural mind say, that's ours. You can't do that. And it's not humanly possible. So the message that Jesus is wanting to hand to them that they're not willing to accept is this. The Jewish system is gone. The Christian system is here. I'm fulfilling your system. Your system is gone. Your power is gone. You're about to lose it all. There will be nothing but Christ. They will come to me, the temple, and they will worship me, the temple of the living temple of God. And they, my believers, will be the temple, not a building. I will dwell with them, and within them. So I want to ask you a question. Have you been rejecting the gospel because it attacks your sense of self-reliance? See, they're attacking the, the, this gospel presentation. This Jesus is attacking their self-reliance, their own system, their own way. They don't want Jesus' way. They want their way. And many of you are rejecting God based on that today. I have a system, Lord. Don't interrupt it. Don't hand me Jesus. I've got a way to heaven. I don't need him. Others need him. Weak people need him. I've got a way. Maybe that's the question that is applicable to your life. The Jews didn't want to hear what Jesus was saying because their minds were filled with wrong ideas. The Jews had their private interpretation of Scripture. The Jews had filled their minds with man's law, not with God's law. I fear that our day is much worse. Far from trying to improve on God's law, we're tearing God's law down and our minds return to the world. You can't interpret or understand Scripture with a worldly mind. If your mind is filled with the world's thoughts, it cannot be filled with God's thoughts. It cannot. And so you've got to answer the question. Is your mind filled with worldly ideas of fairness and freedom and all of these things? Because the truth will attack those worldly truths. Finally, in this passage, we see that the spirit, spiritual truth can be understood by even the most uneducated. The disciples will understand what is going on here. They will understand that Jesus is making reference to himself and not the physical temple. And they will soon, in time to come, understand that he was replacing the Jewish system with the Christian system. They will understand that. The Jewish leaders were the most educated men of their day. They knew more than anybody at the temple. 
The disciples were uneducated by the world standards. But they knew the Scripture and they were willing to believe the truth. I would rather have you know the Scripture and be willing to believe the truth of the Scripture than I had to have you go to an institution to be trained. I am not speaking against institutional training, but what I'm saying is unnecessary. It is unnecessary. You don't have to wait till you have a diploma on your wall or you've been through some training course, although it may be helpful to you, and I believe they are very helpful. You don't need that to be approved by the Lord and ready for His service. What you have to be, whether you've been to an institution for training or not, is submissive to the Word of God and to believe it is true above all else. And at that moment, you're more useful than anybody trained in any system that doesn't believe that it is infallible and errant and the holy Word of God. You're more equipped at that moment than many of academia today. And they spent their whole life there. And they've missed the truth. They're like the Pharisees. They've never caught on. They're still in the natural mindset instead of the spiritual mindset. The scriptural insight dealing with this is that God chooses to use the foolish people of the world to confound the wise. I tell people all of the time, I'm a fool. I'm not trying to be self-effacing, but I believe that. Aaron, I've heard Aaron say that to people. People step back and they want to defend you. Oh, you're not a fool. You're smart. Well, there aren't many smart people that are in the kingdom. There aren't many wise. There aren't many rich. There aren't many powerful and strong, mighty. There are more fools, more simple-minded, more poor, more people with no power and no position in the kingdom. And you say, wait a minute now. I don't know if I've signed up for that. I don't know that I want you to talk about me that way. Well, I'll let Paul talk. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to tell you this. The disciples were fishermen, simple people, simply educated and yet, they're the wisest people in the temple besides Christ. They're the only ones who gathered it. They're the only ones who understood it and perceived it. They're wiser than the Pharisees. And even when they stand before probably some of these same leaders on trial for preaching the gospel, the report is these are untrained and ignorant men. But what? They have been with Jesus. Don't let anyone look down on you because you don't have an institutional approving piece of paper. Love God. Love His Word. Study it and seek understanding through the Holy Spirit. And whether you're untrained or trained, you will be the wisest in God's standard. You will be the approved one in God's standard. You can do it. There's no age limit. 
either young or old. There's no IQ level required. You don't have to take the uh, GMAT or any of the other tests that we take to get in graduate school. You don't have to take that. There's one test. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, that He is the only one who saves? Do you believe His Word is perfect and inerrant and the only truth? And if you believe that, you're ready to go into His training. You're ready. You can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, I ask these three probing questions with those three points. Do you hear God speaking to you through His Word? Maybe you've come here and you don't know God personally. You don't know Christ, the Savior. Do you hear God speaking to you today? If you do, hear Him through the Word of God. Repent and believe and you will be saved. You don't have to walk down the aisle. You don't have to take anybody by the hand. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to do any of that. The only thing that's necessary is that you repent and believe. That's it. Are you rejecting the truth because you are not spiritual or because you do not want to hear the truth? Maybe you fall in the second category. Maybe you are a Christian even, and yet you're rejecting the truth because it's not fitting your plan. And I will say to you, we have a king. He has a plan, and we're to submit to his plan. We don't have that option. We march in his army. He is the king. Third, are you letting a lack of education stop you from being bold in your witness for Christ? Maybe you are. You don't have to. If you're armed with the word of God, with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, being submissive to the truth and those who are over you in authority and teaching you the word, you can teach and train others. You can do it. In the 1600s, there was a pastor in England who went to a small parish and began to work in a small rundown church. He had no formal training, never even graduated from what we would call high school. He had the Word of God and the Spirit in him. He began to lead the congregation. Humbly, submissively to the Lord Jesus and to them as their servant, teaching them the truth from house to house and preaching them the truth and proclaiming them the truth. And over the next 30 years, God transformed that parish. They went from just a handful of meeting to a thousand. But the most remarkable change from those outside who traveled often through that parish was this. When he arrived there, they were a very pagan society. No regard to God or to his law. After Richard Baxter had been in place 30 years, the testimony of the outside world to his ministry was that on every street corner you could hear those proclaiming the truth. It was often said that they sang hymns in the street and challenged one another with the truth of the scripture and disciplined one another as brothers and sisters will discipline one another. And they lived in harmony with all men. And he was untrained. Never been to seminary. Didn't have a degree. No approval from mankind. He had the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and a submissive heart. 
So which of us will be that man or woman? Which of us will be that person that submits to the Word of God, to His power, humbly through the Holy Spirit's power and prayer, teach them the truth? Let's pray. Father, Your Word is magnificent. We are truly in awe of Your power to convict us, to change us, transform us. Lord, I ask that You would take this message today and work it into our minds and our hearts. Help us to be humble and submissive to Your Word as the truth and then to teach others, train others. Lord, I pray that You would be with those who are lost in the congregation today, those who don't know You. Lord, I pray that they heard Your Word today and that they accepted it as the truth and they have repented and they have believed. And if not, God, I pray that You would be merciful to them and that you would continue, continue to draw them. Please draw them. If you do not draw them, they will not be saved. Please, Lord, be merciful to them and draw them that they might be saved. And Lord Jesus, we ask as we sing in response to this message, we pray that we would sing with glad hearts at the truth we have heard. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If y'all